0: Welcome to A Dark Turn, part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Kevin Deutsch. Here on the show, our goal is to take you deep inside the world of criminals and criminality and to illuminate the darker parts of American society, especially those where violence and psychopathy collide with the American ideal. Today's guest is Rebecca Godfrey, the author of the novel The Torn Skirt and Under the Bridge, winner of the Arthur Ellis Award for Excellence in Canadian Crime Writing, She holds an MFA from Sarah Lawrence College and is a recipient of fellowships from Yaddo and the McDowell Colony. She teaches writing at Columbia University and lives with her family in upstate New York. Rebecca has written a book called Under the Bridge, which came out originally in 2005 and has been reissued this year. It's a stunning uh, true uh, narrative account of uh of a of a murder of a young woman named Rena Virk um, the subtitle of Under the Bridge is the true story of the murder of Rena Virk and the book is, is so well timed uh, for a reissue, and it's it's a stunning uh, account in that it, it it delves into the the lives of the characters these these this group of seven teenagers uh, involved in a murder, um, in British Columbia uh in the late 90s and it gives their lives such emotional depth an emotional depth that's really rare in true crime non-fiction today and whereas a lot of i think true crime narrative non-fiction um, even if it mean doesn't mean to today does exploit to a certain degree this um is such a full portrait of this these characters um it, it, it it's anything but exploitative it's it's uh it renders the 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 the, the the world of these children so fully and captures the, the, the a climate that led to the violence, stunning violence in this book so fully and dramatically um, that it's truly, a, I think a great contribution to, to the true, true crime genre. And we spoke to Rebecca about um, the, the amount of work that she put into this over a period of years and the toll it took on her and, and, and how she gave her entire life essentially to this telling the story. And um, she had sort of put, put the story away for years because this is a reissue. It's, it's uh, the book. Um, uh, there's 14 years between the, the time the book came out and its reissuing. Um, and she sort of had to delve back into that emotional realm that she visited to report this book uh, as a young woman. And uh, we, have a, we had a fascinating conversation uh, about her process and, and what it's like for her and the characters um, in, this, in this work. Without further ado, here is my interview with Rebecca Godfrey, author of Under the Bridge The True Story of the Murder of Rena Virk. Rebecca Godfrey, thank you so much for joining us on a dark turn today to discuss your book, Under the Bridge The t- True Story of the Murder of Rena Virk. We really appreciate your being here. Well, thank you. This this is uh, really a beautifully rendered book uh, uh, about a terrible crime uh, that occurred in British Columbia in uh, in the late '90s, um, and you've taken uh, what it, what it could have been a traditional true crime story and really turned it into a, a, a really a work of art. I mean, it's the writing is so beautiful and the the characters are so fully drawn and, and full and and depthful in a way that you know you don't always uh, often see in the true crime genre and i know you're you're, you're a novelist um, and a a, a a writing teacher and um, i think part of what made the book so so wonderful is the fact that you approached it as a, as a as a you know as a as a human being with a heart and an artist rather than a grizzled true crime reporter like a lot of people who who, who listen to this show um, so so I, I just i'm so interested in your approach um I know it took you about i think you said it took you about six years to 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 write report and and research this book. Just share with our audience a little bit about about this story and how you first got turned on to it. and I know initially um I believe you were gonna do it as a as a magazine piece and it just kept getting richer and richer and um, and you eventually did it as the, as this book that came out in um I believe this book first came out in o five is that right yes right and and it's been reissued. Um, for all you readers out there It's been reissued And it's also um, there, I listen to the audiobook as well Which is I, I encourage everyone to, uh, to listen to Because it's just beautifully done as an audiobook But um, it's, it's really relevant in our culture again Not just in 05 But now with the reissue Just tell us a little bit about how you got drawn into the story And how it kept growing for you Out of that, that original uh, magazine article idea Yeah City and had finished grad school and was working on a novel and, you know, working as a, doing occasional interviews for arts magazines
1: and I saw the New York Times um, this headline, Grizzly Slaying of Girl, 14 Startles a Small Town, and read it and and realized the small town was Victoria, British Columbia, which was where I grew up and so there were just a lot of details that intrigued me, you know, number one that it was my hometown, which was a, is a very idyllic sort of tourist destination in Canada and the Pacific Northwest, very quiet, um not, you know, a violent urban town, so that was sort of shocking and then there were details in the article um, these kids that they interviewed saying, you know, something happened, it was just a group of friends, and, and um Essentially, the article said that a girl, Rena Virk, had been missing for a week, um, had gone to a party with her friends, never come home. And then the police, uh, the following week, rumors had spread through the school about something happening to her, and the police had arrested eight teenagers, seven of them girls. So that alone was pretty stunning. Um, and the girls were 14 to 16. I think the murder happened on November fourteenth, and I, you know, every year would go home for Christmas. From, so I went home that that Christmas and just ended up going to the courthouse, going um, like into the youth prison. Sort of seeing who these kids were was my initial question. Like, were they were they the misfits? Were they like the Nashville Mafia? Were they you know? And they were just these really kind of ordinary kids like into hip-hop you know very just seemingly normal so um and the girls really fascinated me when I saw them in the prison because um they just you know they looked terrified they looked tough they they looked um they were just compelling to me like how did they get here and i started hearing more things talking to more kids and so initially i was going to write a um yeah an article for a woman's magazine about the main girl accused of murder had been nicknamed killer kelly well actually the the media had found out her nickname at high school was killer kelly and so there was this lot of sensational media about killer kelly and i was going to write a profile or a piece on her who she was and I had read her police statement and it seemed pretty clear to me that she was guilty from reading that and just her denials didn't make sense. Um, So yeah, so then I, I, you know, started talking and finding out more and actually Kelly began to seem to me the least interesting of this group and um, I became interested in the one boy who was charged. Um, I became interested in the girls who had sort of, organized the fight and um, the sort of revenge motive behind this fight and Rita's family who were um, an immigrant family, her grandparents. So, you know, there was just a lot of people, the cops I hung out with, you know, so I decided to approach it as a book and um,
0: it became a very long process one one of the things that really struck me about this this story is the the sort of um um influence of uh american hip hop culture and american sort of the pop culture uh um portrayal of gangsterism in america um yeah. and, and it's a, it's a it's a it's a canadian story but it's an american story in many ways because uh this seemed like it uh, you know we're talking about seven uh teenage girls and one teenage boy who were involved in this beating and Eventually, uh, two of them were were convicted of of, of of various degrees of murder, but um, the 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 this group of this clique of teens, um, they were influenced by sort of hip hop videos and the ideas of, they, they talk about being knowing or being involved with the Crips, and of course the Crips. I wrote a book about the Bloods and the Crips, and and it's, and, and it's like, you know, the the Crips and Bloods grew out of like late 60s um, at Los Angeles and sort of they've been franchised all over America. And there's five decades of criminal lore and sort of glorification of violence, which of course grew out of like very real social problems, poverty, drugs, uh, over-policing in black communities in LA. And then over five decades, it's really taken on this allure even in many white communities in America. Um, this idea of this glorification in the in the culture of of violence and and uh, certain themes in, in hip hop music um totally getting away from the, the legitimate roots of of some of these issues um, and and this so you end up having this this fairly affluent community where this group of teenagers and a lot of them have turbulent home lives personal problems and they gravitate toward this sort of persona that they see in the music and in, and gang and hip hop uh, gangster hip hop and one of the most richly drawn uh, characters is a, a, a young girl in your in your book um, um, who was implicated uh, in the beating was Josephine Bell, and I, I think she's just such a compelling character. One of the most compelling, and because it's just she's real, you know, and and she's a real person, and you capture the reality of her life and all her flaws. Um, anyway, so she emulated John Gotti, and of course the the, the way that the way that many. And the Crips, the way that many, uh, uh, the way that, that Gotti was glorified in America, she, he was also glorified in that in that clique. So if, yeah. you, if you could just talk a little bit about how you think that 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 informed that world at that time that these girls and, and young men were living in, and how you think right. that that culture sort of impacted them in that moment in time. Yeah, I
1: mean, I was really struck by that because, um, I mean, that was the, the late 90s, and I... I that moment of Snoop Dogg and Dr. Dre and Aaliyah and I was older, but I liked all that too. I mean, it was such a a moment of, um, popularity for that style and that kind of music and becoming very mainstream. And you're right, it came out of a very specific LA culture and then became marketed, um, to white kids. And who didn't really understand you know the roots of it and so they I mean I saw the same thing in New York it was happening everywhere where high school kids were really fascinated by those fashions and wearing the baggy pants and doing the crip walk and you know so these kids were I totally got where they were coming from and I knew the music that they were influenced by um but I think what struck me was was how the violence um had been turned into entertainment and was very had a really negative influence on these kids because it was it was glorified and they all sort of wanted this facade of you know being being the gangster they saw in hip-hop videos with the cars and the girls and they all they all knew the lyrics like 187 on an undercover cop. You know, and I remember one of the boys saying to me, "I never, until I was in jail, I never. It was just a word like 187. You know, they they didn't understand there was sort of a reality behind that that fantasy. So they were very young, so it was like they were almost play acting, and that really struck me when I saw them. You know, with their in prison with their posters of Tupac. Aaliyah and stuff, it was like this was their um, you know, we all have those figures when we're young that we aspire, mine were like punk rock, you know, and these kids this was what they were copying and emulating and um, some of them were affluent, but some of them lived in project, you know, the equivalent of a Canadian housing projects or a trailer park, and I think they're they're actually, I didn't expect it, but there was a bit of a um, underworld that some of them ultimately drifted into that was had a sort of gang element. So there was a, a crossover between some affluent kids who maybe were just like, it was a style, and then there were some kids who really were embedded in a, um, a violent lifestyle. And that was part of what made it such a tragedy, was that these two worlds, very different types of teenage kids collided on that night because they all were hanging out at the school, um, and then they all got drawn into this murder. Um, the more you know, criminal element of kids, and the more like suburban,
0: ordinary kids. It's uh, it's it's so interesting. Um, the dynamic at play there. Uh, another thing that really jumped out at me was, um. So, uh, the, well I mentioned the the audio, the audible version of this book, which I think is just wonderfully done by this voice actress. I believe her name is Erin Moon. Do I have that Erin yeah. Moon? Yeah, so she's great. she's great. And she does the voices for all your various the various uh, people in the book and it's like you know, it's just wonderfully done. I would encourage our, our listeners to check that out in addition to the print edition of Under the Bridge. But um in a in an interview at the end of the audio book, you she interviews you and um you talk about a little bit about um, how you you would even approach this this book as a as a reporter because you weren't a trained journalist and so you were sort of learning on the job as you went how to report and and report a true crime book and a true crime drama involving court testimony and documents and police interrogations and your training was as as a novelist and you wrote this wonderful book uh, the torn skirt uh, 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 a novel before you came to this uh, this nonfiction work under the bridge uh, can you talk a little bit about what were some of the advantages of coming to a project like this without being as, as a, as not as a reporter, um, but as a a very skilled and talented writer, um, versus maybe some of the disadvantages that you might've faced in in the learning curve for having to delve into this world of, of sort of documents and information requests and, and, you know, get, getting into the nitty gritty of people's lives in a, in a sometimes intrusive way for, for, you know, for reporters. So, uh, can, can you just talk a little bit about that
1: yeah I mean I think it was a huge advantage in that I wasn't seen as part of the media in quotes because these teenagers were very um, angry at the media because they did be these nightly stories and they, you know even the kids who were witnesses or were friends were were portrayed in the in the media as these horrible kids who hadn't helped Rena. And so they they were very wary. And there was a an element of a group of of local crime reporters who were were familiar from T V or they you know, knew their they had covered, you know, Hells Angels trials. So they were just sort of known figures and I was a part of that group. And so I think there was a even with detectives or um, more official people, there was a comfort level with me because they didn't see me, you know, that they didn't feel that whatever they told me would be on the news that night or in the paper that day. You know, so they felt they could kind of um, relax with me and I wasn't as, I don't think I approached it as like looking for, um, give me like a hit for my 5 o'clock news, you know, so Mm. I would just talk to them in a more conversational way, rather than and sort of interrogation, and get to know them all. And it was a much more slow process of just trusting each other and and learning. So, in that way, I just think it was a huge advantage. And I I didn't come to it with any kind of set ideas of what I had to get or what what how to approach reporting, um, which I think a lot of crime reporters. Really, you know, they have a, a template that they're following, and they get that information. And they file their story, and that that. So I wasn't um, limited by that, and uh, I yeah, I just found I actually, you know, was quite scared originally that I couldn't get anywhere without a certain official reputation or badge or whatever. And it was very easy to talk to people without that, so that was surprising and welcome and I think um, in terms of the difficulty it was it was just overwhelming for me the you know the amount of information that I had to find out and early on somebody gave me and I have no idea why it was just an incredible score and I didn't even know it existed and somebody I was asked to interview gave me a a whole um, police document file on the case which was about 500 pages so once I had that I, you know that was just incredible but there was so much information in it and it gave me so like such a rich picture of what had happened it had the search warrants it had the you know it had the police note from when they went to interview people it had interviews with all these kids that I didn't even know existed that were witnesses or had information so that really um it was an incredible gift, but it was also quite overwhelming just for me as a novelist, not knowing how to, like, proceed with so much um, factual information and documentation and what the, what the rules were. Like, could I, you know, I didn't know what to say to people. I didn't know if people were, were allowed to talk to me. So I had I had to kind of feel it out, and I'm sure I made a lot of mistakes. And, but um, it was also really interesting and fun for me to enter into all those worlds that you don't normally get to go to as a novelist you know to go to a trial to go on a ride with a police officer to to talk to a corrections officer to kind of be taken into all these worlds so i think i was approaching it almost like an anthropologist like what is the what are the rules of this world and what are the what, who are these people what drew them to this it was a much more like um, immersive experience for me and just you know getting the facts of
0: what happened with the murder. I, I think that's an approach. Uh, if if only uh, that if if that uh, if only all or other reporters would use that approach, I think it would benefit um, a lot of a lot of us and in the industry in general to to come at it with fresh eyes and not be so cynical and so and have the right. the template. Um, so uh, and. and For you personally, um, this was a book that came out in 05 originally Um, and you know, the world has changed, the culture's changed um, in many ways, but it's also a book that's really more pertinent than ever. And of course you've had the really explosion in interest in true crime in recent years. Um, And I I think this is a book that tells us a lot about who we were then and also who we are now as as Canadians and as Americans and as a people. um, but but a lot of writers, you know, they, they especially after so many years, this book came out 14 years ago and originally now we have a new version, but all, writers oftentimes will will put a story away uh, and they'll move on. And so and, and so I'm really curious and I think our, our audience, which is a lot of uh, uh, writers as well, would be curious to know what's it like for you sort of did you put this story away and are you now pulling it back out? Um, cause you have to be very public with this and publicize it and it's a new, right. so what's it like for you having, you know, sort of probably moved on with your life and, and having c- taking all these, uh, cause it's a very dark story and a difficult story that must have had a tremendous impact on you personally. What, what's it like bringing all that back out now, f- uh, 14 years later? Yeah, that's a, a really
1: good question. I mean, I definitely was very immersed in it for so long and knew, you know, lived with, lived in British Columbia and spent so much time with all these people, and then when I turned in the book, um, it was very hard to shake, and I was, you know, the kids would still call me, I was still kind of haunted by a lot of the things that I'd witnessed, so I um, had a lot of trouble kind of moving on from it and knowing what to write next, and um, it, it definitely affected me in, almost like a trauma you know almost like living through a trauma and and having witnessed so many people's trauma and been so close to so many people that I needed to you know to tell the story but for me personally it was like carrying all that around for so long so it took quite a long time to kind of move on and I had a daughter and at that point I just didn't want I had to cut off connection with any of these kids or people or really didn't on and started teaching and wrote, began in a new novel and a very different subject so it is really interesting to go back to it i didn't expect i thought i would feel more distant from it and it all kind of came back to me how much um it mattered the story you know what a relevant as you say story it is how much you know even erin moon who did the reading said she was crying and couldn't get through it. I mean, it really just has a powerful effect on people. And it's it. people still, you know, there's even more sort of violence in high schools. We've had Parkdale Park and, I'm sorry, Parkland and, you know, shootings and, and the, the culture around teenagers has become, you know, much more violent. So I think the story of um, what it's like to be in a high school affected by Kids and the, the fact that these peop- these kids all became involved in a murder and they weren't, you know, a Ted Bundy or they, a, they weren't a John Dottie. They were teenagers and they ended up, for most of them, with no intention to do this and they became part of a, a horrible murder. So it's, it's a kind of just an incredible story that I think people... Are so compelled by that it brings me back to it too you know just the the interest people have I'm excited to talk about it and I it really um yeah so I was surprised that I could kind of connect again to it and as I did and feel like you know the story still mattered and feel proud of what I did and I'm I'm also kind of stunned when I read it that
0: And, you, know, lonely. you mentioned uh, Josephine Bell. We, we discussed Josephine Bell uh, earlier. She's one of the most richly drawn, complex characters in your book. And you really, I think, captured the complexity of her life. And, and she was a she she obviously was a, a troubled girl um, in many ways. And but she also had this real complexity to her. And I thought, you know, she she pulled me in and she was the one who really emulated John Gotti and was she gave off this tougher than nails persona, um, but um, you mentioned uh, something about, about Josephine. Can you talk a little bit about, uh, about her? Yeah, she was definitely,
1: when I first started hearing about the case and talking to the police, of all the girls, she was the one that interested me the most. And a detective who had arrested her told me that when he arrested her, she said, get me get me Gotti's lawyer and he sort of jokingly said, I don't think he's available. And then she said, get me Homolka, which for true crime fans. They know I, Carla Homolka was a Canadian, um, a very notorious crime where Paul and Paul Bernardo and and Carla Homolka were a married suburban couple who were arrested for a bunch of terrible murders. So that, when I heard that I was like, who is this girl? And the more I heard about her, she, um, it became clear that she had instigated this this crime as a punishment for rena and her mother had heard her on the phone planning the ways they would kill rena you know that they might bury her and they might push her into a, a grave you know it was just this crazy conversation among two 14 year old girls that the mother overheard so she was in in um prison at the time that i started reporting and i also learned that she had broken out of prison twice, so, um, yeah, she just was a sort of larger-than-life character, this 14-year-old blonde girl who was told everybody she was going to move to New York and, and join the mob, and uh, really, you um, know, in, in a very noir way, av- avoided any consequences. She was never a witness. She never was, you know, the police, I think, could have charged her with, you um, Premeditated, you know, some act of premeditated or conspiracy to commit murder, and they didn't. Um, So she she really was like this noir character in my mind who who got away with it. And when I was on Dateline, they got Dateline actually got her to appear on camera, which was pretty incredible. And she told the producer that she would come to LA if they put her up at the Chateau Marmont which I thought was pretty hilarious. And then on she was also very noir smoking a cigarette she had great red lips so she's just
0: a sort of ruthless um ruthless young woman in a way we don't often see she, she's fa- fa- fascinating where and she is she uh where is she now do you know her i know i know you had written that she had been or uh we talked about in the interview with um with Aaron that she i believe she was uh um uh, was working at a a strip club or i don't know if she became a she was a stripper and quite um
1: successful she was on the circuit in british columbia and at the at the top level i guess and also a stripper in la um and then uh, she told me she quit stripping and moved back to british columbia um so i don't i don't know where she is now but yeah she had a
0: Successful career as a stripper for a couple of years. Oh, I, I, for 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 those of you uh, who che- who haven't read this book yet, check it out. And Josephine Bell, the character, the woman we're discussing, is one of many richly rendered uh, characters in the book that Rebecca just does an incredible job of of, of bringing to life on the page. And obvi- these are all real people. And a lot of times in true crime, you don't rec- the real people don't show up on the page, and, and here they really do in all their complexity. Um, And Rebecca, we thank you so much for joining us on A Dark Turn. Thank you so much. It's great to talk to
1: you.